there's not much opening here. You know who I am. You know what you're doing here. So we're just going to go ahead and get in the book. You wake up at Air Harbor International. Every takeoff and landing. When the plane banked too much to one side, I prayed for a crash. That moment cures my insomnia with narcolepsy. When we might die helpless and packed human tobacco in the fuselage. And this is how I met Tyler Durden. You wake up in O'Hare. You wake up in LaGuardia. You wake up at Logan. Tyler worked part-time as a movie projectionist. Because of his nature, Tyler could only work night jobs. If a projectionist called in sick, the union called Tyler. Some people are night people. Some people are day people. I could only work a day job. You wake up at Dulles. Life insurance pays off triple if you die on a business trip. I prayed for wind shear effects. I prayed for pelicans sucked into the turbines or loose bolts and ice on the wings. On takeoff, as the plane pushed up, pushed down the runway and the flaps tilted up, our seats in the full and upright position and our tray table stowed and all of our personal baggage in the overhead compartment as the end of the runway ran up to meet us with our smoking materials extinguished, I prayed for a crash. You wake up at Love Field in the projection booth. Tyler does changeovers as if the theater was old enough. With changeovers, you have two projectors in the booth. One is running. I know this because Tyler knows this. The second projector is set up with the next reel of film. Most movies are six or seven small reels of film played in a certain order. Newer theaters, they splice all the reels together into one five-foot reel. This way, you don't have to run back between two projectors and do changeovers, switch back and forth, reel one, switch, reel two on the other projector, reel, switch, reel three on the first projector, switch. You wake up at SeaTac. I studied the people on the laminated airline seat card. A woman floats in the ocean, her brown hair spread out behind her, her seat cushion clutched to her chest. The eyes are wide open, but the woman doesn't smile or frown. In another pe picture, people calm as Hindu cows reach up from their seats towards oxygen masks sprung out of the ceiling. This must be an emergency. Oh, we've just lost cabin pressure. Oh, you wake up, you're at Willow Run, old theater, new theater. To ship a movie to the next theater, Tyler has to break the movie back down into the original six or seven reels. The small reels pack into a pair of hexagonal uh, steel suitcases. Each suitcase has a handle on top. Pick one up and you'll dislocate the, your shoulder. They weigh that much. Tyler's banquet wait, waiter waiting tables at a hotel downtown and Tyler's a projectionist with, with the projector operators union. I don't know how Tyler had been work, working all those nights. I couldn't sleep. 
field theaters that run a movie with two projectors. A projectionist has to stand right there to change projectors at the exact second. The audience never sees a break when one wheel starts and the other reel ran out. You have to look for the white dots at the top, right-hand corner of the screen. This is the warning. Watch the movie. You'll see these two dots at the end of a reel. Cigarette burns, they're called in the business. The first white dot is the two-minute warning. You get the projector started so it'll be running up to speed. The white dot is your five-second warning. Excitement. You're standing between the two projectors and the booth is sweating hot from the xenon bulbs. If you looked right into them, you'd be blind. The first dot flashes on the screen. The sound of a movie comes from a big speaker behind the screen. The projectionist booth is soundproof because inside the booth is a racket of sprockets snapping of films past the lens at 6 feet a second, 10 frames a foot, 60 frames a second, snapping through, clattering, Gatlin gun fire, the two projectors running, you stand between and hold the shutter level over each. On the really old projectors, you have an alarm on the hub of the real feed. Even after the movies on television, the warning dots will still be there, even on the airplane movies. At most, as most of the reel, the movie rolls on to the take-up reel, then the take-up reel turns slower and the feed reel has to turn faster or the alarm will start ringing to warn you that a changeover is coming. The dark is hot from the bulbs inside the projectors and the alarm is ringing. Stand there between the two projectors with a lever in each hand and watch the corner of the screen. The second dot flashes. Count to five. Switch one shutter closed. At the same time, open the other shutter. Change over. The movie goes on. Nobody in the audience has any idea. The alarm is on the read reel so the movie projectionist can take a nap. A movie projectionist does a lot he's not supposed to do. Every time, Not every projectioner has an alarm. At home, you'll sometimes wake up in your dark bed with the terror that you've fallen asleep in the booth and missed a changeover. The audience will be cursing you. The audience, their movie dream is ruined and the manager will be calling the union. You wake up at Chrissy Field. The charm of traveling is everywhere I go. Tiny life. I go to the hotel. Tiny soap. Tiny shampoo. Single serving butter. Tiny mouthwash. Single use toothbrush. Fold into the standard airplane seat. You're a giant. The problem is your shoulders are too big. Your Alice in Wonderland legs are all of a sudden miles long as they touch the feet of the person in front. Dinner arrives. A miniature to it do it your do it yourself cordon blue hobby kit. Sort of put together project to keep you busy. The plane is turned on. The pilot has turned on the seatbelt sign, and we would like you to refrain from moving about the cabin. You wake up in Meg's field. Sometimes Dyler wakes up in the dark, buzzing in the 
with the terror that he's missed a real change or a movie is broken or the movie has slipped through just enough in just enough in the projector that the sprockets are punching lines of holes through the soundtrack after the movie has been sprocket run the lights of the bulb shine through the soundtrack and instead of talk you're blasted with helicopter blade sound of whoop as each burst of light comes through a sprocket hole. What else a projectionist shouldn't do? Tyler makes slides out of the best single frames from a movie. The first full frontal movie anyone could ever remember had the naked actress Andy D Angie Dixon. By the time a print of the movie had been shipped from the west coast to the East Coast theaters, the nude scene was gone. One projectionist took a frame, another projectionist took a frame. Everybody wanted to make a naked slide of Angie Dickinson. Porno got into theaters, and these projectionists, some guys, they've built collections that have gotten epic. You wake up at Boeing Field, you wake up at LAX. We have an almost empty flight tonight. So feel free to fold the armrests down into the into the seat backs and stretch out. You stretch out, zigzag, knees bent, elbows bent across three or four seats, waist bent. I set my watch two hours earlier and three hours later, Pacific, Mountain, Central, Eastern Time. Lose an hour, gain an hour. This is your life, and it's ending one minute at a time. You wake up at Cleveland Hopkins. You wake up at SeaTac again. You're a projectionist and you're tired and angry, but mostly you're bored. So you start by taking a single frame of pornography collected by some other projectionist that you find stashed away in the booth. And you splice this frame of a lunging red penis or a yawning wet vagina close up into another feature movie. One of these... This is one of those pet adventures when the dog and the cat are left behind by a traveling family and must find their way home. In real three, just after the cat and the dog, who have human voices and talk to each other, have eaten out of the garbage can, there's a flash of an erection. Tyler does this. A single frame in a movie on the screen is for one sixtieth of a second. Divide a second into sixty equal parts. That's how long the erection is. Towering, four stories tall over the popcorn audience. Slippery and red and terrible and nobody sees it. You wake up at Logan again. This is a terrible way to travel. I go to meetings. My boss doesn't want to attend. I take notes. I'll get back to you. Wherever I'm going, I'll be there to apply for the apply the formula. I'll keep the secret intact. It's simple arithmetic. It's a story problem. If a new car built by my company leaves Chicago west at 60 miles an hour and the rear differential brakes lock up and the car crashes and burns with everybody trapped inside, does my company initiate a recall? You take the population of vehicles in the field, A, Multiply it by the probable rate of failure, B. Then multiply the result of the average cost of an out-of-court settlement, C. B, A, 
times b times c equals x. This is what it'll cost if we don't initiate a recall. If x is greater than the cost of the recall, we recall the cars and no one gets hurt. If x is less than the cost of the recall, then we don't do a recall. Everywhere I go, there's a burned up, waddled up shell of a car waiting for me. I know where all those skeletons are. Consider this my job security. Hotel time, restaurant food, everywhere I go, I make tiny friendships with the people sitting beside me, from Logan to Chrissy to Willow Run. What I am is a recall campaign coordinator. I tell the single-serving friend next to me, but I'm working towards a career as a dishwasher. You wake up at O'Hare again. Tyler spliced a penis and into everything after that, usually close-ups or a Grand Canyon vagina with an echo four stories high and twitching with the blood pressure Cillarella danced with her Prince Charming and people watched. People, nobody complained, people ate and drank, but the evening just wasn't quite the same. People feel sick or start to cry and don't know why. Only a hummingbird would have caught Tyler at work. You wake up at JFK. You smelt and swell at the moment of landing when the one wheel thuds on the runway, but the plane leads, leans to one side, hangs for in, in the decision to ride itself or roll. For this moment, nothing matters. Look up at the stars and you're gone. Not your luggage, nothing matters. Not your bad breath. The windows are dark outside, the turbine engines roar backwards, the cabin hangs at the wrong angle under the roar of the turbines, and you will never have to file another expense account claim. Receipt required for all items over $25. You will never need to get another haircut. A thud and a second wheel hits the tarmac, the statico of a hundred seatbelt buckles snapping open and the single-use friend that you almost died sitting next to says well I hope you make your connection yeah me too and this is how long your moment lasted and life goes on and somehow by accident Tyler and I meet it was time for a vacation you wake up you wake up at LAX again how I met Tyler was I went to a nude beach and this was at the very end of the summer and I, and I was asleep. Tyler was naked and sweating, gritty with sand, his hair wet and string hanging in his face. Tyler had been around a long time before we met. He was pulling up driftwood logs out of the surf, dragging them up the beach in the wet sand. He had, He'd already planted a half circle of logs, so they stood a few inches apart and as tall as his eyes. There were four logs, and when I woke up, Tyler pulled a fifth log up to the beach. Tyler dug a hole under the end of the log and then lifted the end until the log slid into the hole and stood there at a slight angle. You wake up at the beach. We were the only people on the beach. With a stick, Tyler drew a straight line in the sand several feet away. 
Tyler went back to straighten the log by stamping the sand around its base. I was the only person watching this. Tyler called over. Do you know what time it is? I always wear a watch. Do you know what time it is? I asked. Where? Right here, Tyler said. Right now. It was 4.06 p.m. After a, t after a while, Tyler sat cross-legged in the shadow of the standing logs. Tyler sat for a few minutes, got up, took a swim, put on a t-shirt, swear pair of sweatpants. I started to leave. I had to ask. I had to, I had to know what Tyler was doing while I was asleep. If I could wake up in a different place at a different time, could I wake up as a different person? I asked if Tyler was an artist. He shrugged and showed me how the five logs were wider at the base. He showed me the line he had drawn in the sand. He had shown me the line to gauge the shadow casting by each log. Sometimes you wake up and you have to ask where you are. What Tyler has created was the shadow of a giant hand, but only the fingers But now only the fingers are long and the thumb is too short. But he said how at exactly 4.30 the hand will be perfect. The giant shadow hand was perfect for one minute. And for one perfect minute, Tyler had sat in the palm of the perfection he had created himself. You wake up and you're nowhere. One minute was enough, Tyler said. And a person had to work hard for it. But one minute of perfection was worth the effort. A moment was the most you could ever expect from perfection. Wake up. That's enough. His name was Tyler Jer Durden. He was a movie projectionist with the Union. And he was a baker waiter at a hotel downtown. He gave me his phone number. And this is how we met. Before. All the usual brain parasites are here tonight. Above and beyond always gets a big turnout. This is Peter. This is Aldo. This is Marcy. Hi. The introductions. Everybody, this is Marla Singer. And this is her first time with us. Hi, Marla. At Above and Beyond, we start with the catch-up rap. The group isn't called parasitic brain parasites. You would never hear anyone call say parasite. Everybody was always getting better. Oh, this new medication. Everyone's still always just turned the corner. Still, everywhere, there's a squint of a five-day headache. A woman wipes it in involuntary tears. Everyone gets a name tag. And people you've met every Tuesday night for a year, they come to you, handshake ready, and their eyes on your name tag. I don't believe we've met. No one ever says parasite. They say agent. They don't say cure. They say treatment. The catch-up rap. Someone will say how the agent has spread into his spinal column, and now all of a sudden he has no control of his left hand. 
The agent, someone will say, has dried up the lining of his brain, so now the brain pulls away from inside of his skull, causing seizures. The last time I was here, a woman named Chloe announced the only good news she had. She pushed herself to her feet against the wooden arms of her chair and said that she had no longer any fear of death. Tonight, after the instructions and wrap-up, a girl I don't know with a name tag that says Glinda says she's Chloe's sister and that the two and that at two in the morning last Tuesday, Chloe finally died. Oh, this should be so sweet. For two years, Chloe has been crying in my arms during hug time, and now she's dead, dead in the ground, an urn, mausoleum, cololombarium. Oh, the proof that one day you're thinking and hauling yourself around, and the next, your cold fertilizer, worm buffet. This is the amazing miracle of death. It should be so sweet if it weren't for, oh, that one, Marla. Oh, and Marla's looking at me again, singling out among the brain parasites. Liar, faker. Marla's a faker. You're the faker. Everyone around when they wince or twitch or fall down barking or the crotch of their jeans turns dark blue. Well, it's just a big act. Guided meditation, all of a sudden, won't take me anywhere tonight. Behind each of the seven palace doors, the green door, the orange door, Marla, the blue door, Marla, stands there, liar, in guided meditation through the cave of my power animal. My power animal is Marla, smoking her cigarette, Marla, rolling her eyes, liar, black hair, and pillowy French lips, faker, and in dark dark leather sofa lips, you can't escape. Chloe was the genuine article. Chloe was the way Joni Mitchell's skeleton would look if you made it smile and walk around at a party being extra nice to everybody. Picture Chloe's popular skeleton the size of an insect running through the vaults and galleries of her innards at two in the morning. Her pulse, a siren overhead, prepare, announcing, prepare for death in ten, nine, in eight, death will commence in seven, six. At night, Chloe ran, ran around the maze of her own collapsing veins and burst tubes, spraying hot limp nerves surfaces tripwires and the tissue abscesses swell in the tissue around her as hot white pearls the overhead announcement prepared to evacuate bowels in ten nine eight seven prepare to evacuate soul in ten nine eight chloe splashing through the ankle deep backup of renal fluid from her failed kidneys Death will commence in five, four, five, four. Around her parasitic life sprays plants in her heart. Four, three, three, two. Chloe climbs hand over hand up in the curdled lining of her own throat. 
death to commence in three and two moonlight shines in through the open mouth prepare for the last breath now evacuate now soul clear of body now death commences now oh this should be so sweet the remembered warm jubble of Chloe is still in my arms and Chloe dead somewhere Oh no, but I'm watched by Marla. In guided meditation, I open my arms to receive my inner child, and my inner child is Marla, smoking her cigarette. No white healing ball of light. Liar, no chakras. Picture your chakras opening as flowers at the center of each slow motion. Explosion of sweet light. Liar, my chakras stay closed. When meditation ends, everyone is stretching and twisting their hands and pulling pulling each other to their feet. Preparation. Therapeutic physical contact. For the hug, I look in three steps to stand against Marla, who looks up into my face as I watch everyone else for the cue. Let's all, the cue comes, embrace somebody near us. My arms clamp around Marla. Pick someone special to you tonight. Marla's cigarette hands were pinned to her waist. Tell someone how you feel. Marla doesn't have testicular cancer. Marla doesn't have tuberculosis. She isn't dying. Okay, in that brainy brain food philosophy way, we're all dying. But Marla isn't dying the way Chloe was dying. The cue sounds... Share yourself. So, Marla, how you like them apples? Share yourself completely. So, Marla, get out, get out, get out. Go ahead and cry if you have to. Marla stares up at me. Her eyes are brown, her earlobes pucker around earring holes, but no earrings. Her chat lips are frosted with dead skin. Go ahead and cry. You're not dying either, said Marla. Around us, couples stand sobbing, propped against each other. You tell on me, Marla says, and I'll just tell on you. Then we can split the week, I say. Marla can have bone disease, brain parasites, and tuberculosis. I'll keep testicular cancer, blood parasites, and organic brain dementia. Marla says, what about ascending bowel cancers? Ooh, girl has done her homework. We'll split bowel cancer. She gets it the first and third Sunday of every month. No, Marla says. No, she wants it all. The parasites, the cancers. Marla's eyes narrow. She never dreamed she could feel so marvelous. That's a great word. S-M-A-R-V-E-L-O-U-S, by the way. She actually felt alive. Her skin was clearing up. All her life, she never saw a dead person. There was no real sense of life because she had nothing to contrast it to. But now, there's dying and death and loss and grief and weeping, shuddering, terror and remorse. Now she knows where we're all going. Marla feels every moment of her life. So no, 
she wasn't leaving any group. Not not and go back to the way life felt before, Marla said. I used to work in a funeral home to feel good about myself. Just the fact that I was breathing. So what if I couldn't get a job in my field? Then go back to the funeral home, I say. Funerals are nothing compared to this, Marla said. Funerals are all abstract ceremony. Here, you have the real experience of death. Couples around the two of us are drying their tears and sniffing and patting each other on the back and letting go. We both can't come, I tell her. Then don't come. I need this. Then go to funerals. Everyone else has broken apart and they're joining hands for the closing prayer. I let Marla go. How long have you been coming here? the closing prayers. Two years. The man in the prayer circle takes my hand. A man takes Marla's hand. The man in the prayer circle takes my hand. A man takes Marla's hand. These prayers start and usually my, bra my breathing is blown. Oh bless us. So bless us in our anger and our fear. Two years? Marla tilts her head to whisper. Oh, bless us and hold us. Anyone who might have noticed me in two years has either died or recovered or never came back. Help us. Help us. Okay, Marla says, okay, okay. You can have testicular cancer. Big Bob and the big bread cheese crying all over me. Thanks brings us to our destiny, brings us to peace. Don't mention it. And this is how I met Marla. Chapter 5 The security task force guy explained everything to me. Baggage handlers can ignore a ticking suitcase. The security task force guy, he called baggage handlers, throwers, Modern bombs don't tick, but a suitcase that vibrates. The baggage handlers, the throwers, have to call the police. And how I came to live with Tyler. It's because most airlines have this policy about vibrating baggage. My flight back from Dulles, I had everything in that one bag. When you travel a lot, you learn to pack the same for every trip. Six white shirts, two black trousers, the bare minimum you need to survive. Traveling alarm clock, cordless electric razor, toothbrush, six pairs of underwear, six pair of black socks. And it turns out my suitcase was vibrating on de departure from Dulles, according to the security task guy. So the police took it off the flight. Everything was in that bag. My contact lens stuff, the red tie with the blue stripes, the blue tie with the red stripes, these regimental stripes, not the club tie stripes. One solid red tie. List all of the things one used to hang on the inside of my bedroom door at home. Home was a condominium on 15th floor of a high rise, a sort of filing cabinet for widows and young professionals. 
The marketing brochure promised a foot of concrete floor, ceiling, and wall between me and any adjacent stereo or turned up television. A wall of concrete and air conditioning. You can't open the windows, so even with maple flooring and dimmer switches, all 1,700 airtight feet would smell like your last meal you cooked or the last trip to the bathroom. And yeah, there are butcher block countertops with low void voltage track lighting. Still, a foot of concrete is important when your next door neighbor lets the battery on her hearing aid go and has to watch game shows at full blast. Or when a volcanic blast of burning gas and debris that used to be your living room set and personal effects blows out of your floor to ceiling windows and sails down flaming to leave just your condo, only yours, a gutted shard concrete hole in the cliffside of the building. These things happen. Everything, including your set of hand-blown glass dishes with tiny bubbles and imperfections, little bits of sand, proof that they were crafted by the honest, simple, hard-working, indigenous, aboriginal peoples of wherever. Well, these dishes get all blown back by the blast. Picture the floor-to-ceiling drapes blown out and flaming to shreds in the hot wind. Fifteen floors over the city, and this stuff comes flaming and bashing and shattering down on everyone's car. Me, while I'm heading west, asleep at Mach 83 or 455 miles an hour, true airspeed, the FBI is bomb-squatting my suitcase on evacuated runway back at Dulles. Nine times out of ten, the, sec- the security task force guy says the vibration-, vibration is an electric razor. This was my cordless electric razor. The other time, it's a vibrating dildo. The security task force guy told me this. This was my destination without my suitcase. Where was I about to cab it home and find my flannel sheets shredded on the ground? Imagine, the task force guy says, telling a passenger on arrival that it, that a dildo kept her baggage on the East Coast. Sometimes it's even a man. It is airline policy not to imply ownership in the event of dildo. You use the indefinite article. A dildo. Never your dildo. Never ever say the dildo accidentally turned itself on. The dildo activated itself and created an emergency situation requiring evacuating your baggage. Rain was falling when I woke up from my connection in Stapleton. Rain was falling when I woke up on our final approach home. An announcement told us to please take this opportunity to check our seats for any personal belongings that we might have left behind. Then the announcement said my name. Would I please meet an airline representative waiting at the gate? I set my watch back three hours. It was still after midnight. There was an airline representative at the gate, and there was a security task force guy to... (laughs) Say, uh, your electric razor kept your uh, check baggage at Dulles. 
the task force guy called baggage handlers, throwers. Then he called them rampers. To prove things could be worse, the guy told me at least it wasn't a dildo. Then maybe, because I'm a guy and he's a guy, it's one o'clock in the morning, maybe to make me laugh, the guy used industry slang for a flight attendant as a space waitress or an air mattress. It looked like the guy was wearing a pilot's uniform, white shirt with little epaulets, and a blue tie. My luggage had been cleared and would arrive the next day. The security guy asked my name and address and phone number, and he asked me what the difference bet between a condom and a cockpit. You can only get one prick into a condom, he said. I cabbed home on my last ten bucks. The local police had been asking a lot of questions, too. My electric razor, which wasn't a bomb, was still three time zones behind me. Something which was a bomb, a big bomb, blasted up my uh, clever coffee tables in the shape of a lime green yin and an orange yang that fit together to make a circle. Well, they're splinters now. My hepatranda sofa group with orange slipcovers designed by Erica Parecki. It was trash now. And I wasn't the only slave to my nesting instinct. People I know used to sit in the bathroom with pornography. Now they sit in the bathroom with their Ikea furniture catalog. We all have the same Johannes Silva armchair in stranine dream, uh, green stripe pattern. Mine fell 15 stories burning into a fountain. We all have the same Rislampa Hall paper lamps made from wire and environmentally friendly unbleached paper. Minor confetti. That's all sitting in the bathroom. The Al Cutlery Service. Stainless steel, dishwasher safe. The Vled Hallwalk made of galvanized steel. Oh, I have that. The Clipsick shelving unit. Oh yeah. The Hemley hat boxes. Yes, the street outside of my high-rise was sparkling and scattered with all of this. The Momanta quilt, quilt cover set designed by Thomas Harita is available in the following. Orchid, fuchsia, cobalt, ebony, jet, eggshell, or heather. I took my whole life to buy this stuff. The easy care textured look, lacquer of my calyx, occasional tables, my steeg nesting tables, you buy furniture. You tell yourself, this is the last sofa I will ever need in my life. Buy the sofa, and then for a couple of years you're satisfied, no matter what goes wrong. At least you've got the sofa issued handled. Then the right set of dishes. Perfect bed, drapes, the rug. Then you're trapped in your own lovely nest with all the things you used to own. They now own you. Until I got home from the airport. The doorman steps out of the shadows and says there's been an accident. The police, they were here and asked a lot of questions. The police think it maybe it was the gas. Maybe the pilot light on the stove went out and the burner was left on, leaking gas, and rose to the ceiling. Gas filled the condo from ceiling to floor, every room. The condo was 1,700 square feet with high ceilings, and for days the gas must have leaked until every room was full. When the rooms were filled to the floor, 
the compressor at the base of the refrigerator clicked on. Detonation. The floor-to-ceiling windows in their aluminum frames went out, and the sofas and the lamps and the dishes and the seat sheds in flames. The high school annuals, the diplomas, the telephone, everything blasting out from the 15th floor of sort of a solar flare. Oh, but not my refrigerator. I'd collected shelves full of different mustards, some stone ground, some English pub style. There were 14 different flavors of fat-free salad dressing and seven kinds of capers. I know, I know, a house full of condiments and no real food. The doorman blew his nose and something went into his handkerchief with a good slap pitch into a catcher's mitt. You could go up to the 15th floor the doorman said, but nobody could get into the unit. Police orders. The police have been asking, did I have an old girlfriend who I'd, who would do this, or did I make an enemy of somebody who had access to di- dynamite? It wasn't worth going. It isn't worth going up, the doorman said. All that's left is the concrete shell. The police hadn't ruled out arson. No, but no one had smelled gas. The doorman raises an eyebrow. This guy spent his time flirting with the day maids and nurses who worked in the big units on the top floor and wasted lobby chairs for their rides after work. Three years I lived there and the doorman still sat reading his Ellery Queen magazine every night while I shifted packages and bags to unlock the front door and let myself in. The doorman raises an eyebrow and says how some people will go on a long trip and leave a candle along long candle burning in a big puddle of gasoline. People with financial difficulties do this stuff. People who want out from under. I asked to use the lobby phone. A lot of young people try and impress the world and buy too many things, the doorman said. I called Tyler. The phone rang in Tyler's rented house on Paper Street. Oh, Tyler, please deliver me. And the phone rang. The doorman leaned into my shoulder and said, A lot of young people don't know what they really want. Oh, Tyler, please come rescue me. The phone rang. People think they want the whole world. Deliver me from Swedish furniture. Deliver me from clever art. The phone rang, and Tyler answered. If you don't know what you want, the doorman said, you'll end up with a lot of what you don't. May I never be complete. May I never be content. May I never be happy. Deliver me, Tyler, from being perfect and complete. Tyler and I agreed to meet at a bar. The doorman asked for a number where the police could reach me. It was still raining. My Audi still parked in the lot, but a Dapco halogen torchier was speared through the windshield. Tyler and I, we met, and we drank a lot of beer. Tyler said, yes, I could move in with him, but I'd have to do him the favor. The next day, my suitcase would arrive with bare minimum, six shirts, six pairs of underwear. There, drunk in a bar, where no one was watching, and no one would care. I asked Tyler what he wanted me to do, and Tyler said, I want you to hit me as hard as you can. Okay, 
So that's it for today. I just love this book. Um, so I hope you're enjoying it. Uh, I'll see you next time.